Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Katie. Hey, Ashley. So for today's episode, we are taking on another major taboo, at least in the circles we grew up in and might still be a part of. How do we identify spiritually or religiously? One of the ideas we keep coming back to this year on the podcast is how have we changed? How has our thinking changed since we began Kindreds back in 2017? (laughs) Feels like a lifetime ago. Mm Mm-hmm. And faith is a consistent theme for our whole podcast, but we've also devoted many Kindred's episodes over the years to talking specifically about our faith and spirituality. I recommend going back to episodes called Our Evolving Spiritual Practices, Who is Jesus to Us, and Afterlife? Question mark. <laughs> if you want to hear us talk more in depth about those things. Our longtime listeners have probably noticed our evolution over the years. I know I certainly have. But we've never really unpacked on the show where we are now and how we got where we are. I know last year when we recorded our afterlife episode, I heard myself talking about what I believe and I had a few moments where I was like, am I even Christian anymore? So Mm -hmm. that is what we're talking about today. Are we Christian? And what does that even mean? Is the label important? Is it a binary thing? Is there a spectrum? And those are just a few of the questions we'll be tackling today. Are you ready for that, Katie? It sounds strangely fun to me. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) I find these conversations really fascinating and liberating. That has not always been the case, though. They used to feel really threatening, like I had to defend myself. I mean, I still do. I still have people questioning my faith all the time. It bothers me less because now Mm. I'm a lot more secure in my spirituality as it evolves. And so my hope is that this conversation helps our listeners who might be struggling with their spiritual identity or if they even want to have one at all. And if you are like us and you were entrenched in formal, the formal institution of the church or faith community, this wrestling with what it means to be a Christian or not as we move through our adulthood can be really confusing. Mm-hmm. And not just for us individually, but for those we've been in community with who are like, what is going on with you now? What, mm, what, what yes. do you believe? Okay, so let's start where we often do very quickly with what did it mean to be Christian when you were growing up? Right. So since we have so much to talk about this topic, uh, I will keep this pretty simple. My background, as our listeners probably know, is that I grew up in the United Methodist Church with Catholic influence from my dad's side of the family. I was introduced to evangelicalism in high school and college, and I tried that on for a while because that's what my friends were, as well as the broader culture of North Mississippi, where I went to college. Being part of a church was very important to me throughout childhood into my late 20s. But to answer the question, what did it mean to be Christian? Growing up, I would have said being a Christian was about being baptized in a Christian church, believing in God, and believing that Jesus was the Son of God who died for our sins. And I also thought it wasn't enough just to be Christian. I also had to strive to be a good Christian, which meant... I don't know, going to church regularly, praying regularly, and looking forward to heaven, I guess. And there was, you know, some stuff in there about helping the poor, looking after the widow and the orphan, doing mission work. But that was more like bonus points. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that is when you started to be seen as going overboard. And I wanted to be somewhere in the middle to be seen as good, but not a religious zealot. And 
that about sums it up for that time in my life. <laughs> what about you? That's so funny. I don't want to be seen as too, too good of a Christian. I don't want to be, I don't want to go overboard. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> mine is similar, but maybe slightly different just because of the influence of evangelicalism in the formation of my faith identity. Mm. And I've talked about this before. I don't know which episode, but in my context, to be a Christian meant that you had prayed a very specific prayer called the sinner's prayer, which is from this verse in the book of Romans. If you confess with the mouth, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In my tradition, you had to say pretty much these words and then poof, you were saved. You were a Christian. And getting baptized was encouraged, but not necessary for mm. salvation, I would say. So there's like a lot of talk of fruit of the spirit, which alludes to what you were describing, meaning your life post being saved should be evident of your Christian identity. Like you read your Bible, you go to church, you don't listen to secular music. But those actions didn't make you a Christian. Technically, you could just say the sinner's prayer and be done with it. I think I've talked about it before as like fire insurance, people would call it. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, so that was our afterlife episode. <laughs> yeah. So like, poof, just like magic. You just say the words and then you're good. That's kind of silly, actually, if you think about it that way. So, okay. So that's where we started. When mm -hmm. did you start to unpack this or question what it meant to be a Christian in your own life? Okay. Well, for me, thinking about this has been really good for me to help me clarify and create a narrative around this that I had never really thought about before. And in thinking about it, the evolution of my faith goes hand in hand with the evolution of my values. I feel like that's something people can probably relate to. As a kid and a teen, I'd always valued learning, thinking for myself, pursuing fairness and equality and questioning authority not resisting authority. I wasn't there yet, but questioning authority. But that, all of that conflicted with my desire to achieve and perform correctly for others and to be seen as a good person. And I look back and realize that it was almost more important for me to be seen as a good person than to actually be a good person. Enneagram is helping me. I was about to say, is that your Enneagram three? <laughs> oh yes, that is my, that is my Enneagram three. <laughs> so as a kid and a teen, following the rules almost always won out over trusting myself. And that's probably been the toughest lesson that I've had to learn throughout my life. So in college, the side of me that wanted to perform and to be accepted, to be seen as, quote, good, was very compelled by the rules and rigid thinking of evangelicalism. There, It's very easy to know where you stand. <laughs> you say the right words. You, you know, mm -hmm. do the right things and you're, and you're good. You're in. But at the same time, the other side of me that valued my own inner voice and thinking for myself, learning and being curious about the world and questioning authority that side was really struggling because my curiosity was leading me to explore things like racism and white supremacy and economic inequality in Mississippi and the U.S. And I started developing my values around gender and racial justice and our social contracts with each other and the role of government in improving the lives of people. Those values were conflicting with what I was hearing in the Christian spaces I was part of. And I don't know if this is true for you, but in the era immediately after 9-11 and during the 2004 presidential election, which I think was the first one I was old enough to vote in, when Christian supremacy against Islam was at the forefront of our national conversation. Do you remember this? It was just mm -hmm. saturating yeah. 
media and church and everywhere. And it felt like Christians everywhere around me at home, at church, on TV, were pounding the drumbeat of war. And I just remember thinking, aren't we the religion of peace? Which, you know, shows how much learning I still had to do. (laughs) But Mm. I was asking questions like, why were Christians so eager for war? And why were they at the same time so opposed to social safety net programs for our most vulnerable people? Why is there so much hunger and poverty in our so-called Christian country? In the early to mid-2000s, evangelical Christianity was loudly aligning itself with capitalism and the Republican Party. And I didn't know what to do with that because I didn't agree with most Republican policies. So I was asking some big questions and starting to feel the cracks in my certainty about my Christian faith. What does it mean to be Christian in a world where people are suffering? All of that widow and orphan stuff. Maybe I really was supposed to be taking that seriously. And what about all the humans out there doing the good work that I wasn't doing? Helping in their communities, sharing their resources with others, looking out for the most vulnerable. But those humans weren't Christians. Was Mm. I really favored over them? Was I really going to heaven instead of them? What is the point of all this? (laughs) That's where I landed, basically. I don't know. Can you relate to any of this? My process was going on at the same time, because when you're talking about that time period, that was when I was in college. I think Mm -hmm. I'm just a year or two older than you, or maybe a year. I can't remember. But 9-11 happened my first semester in college. And but the path that I got to or where I the path I chose to get where you landed was slightly different. And it, it started in the safety of the classroom for me. That's really where I was challenged to think for the first time critically about my religious identity and my beliefs. My first very first class in college was a religious studies class. And something that my church people were like, don't take religious studies classes in college because it's going to it's destroy your faith. And I just remember, like, there must have been something rebellious within me that was like, yeah, I'm going to do this anyway. And that was the first place I encountered theology that was not evangelical in nature. It was sophisticated and intellectual and deeply thoughtful. And I'm not saying that evangelicals can't be those things. But Mm -hmm. for me, it was like a totally different way of thinking about the divine. And at first, I was really horrified when I started learning this stuff. And then I got hooked. It was so good. The people were so smart. And much like you, I had always been intellectually curious in every aspect of my life. It's just that I had never been exposed to religious studies before college. So I'd never had the opportunity to be intellectual in exploring these concepts. So I signed up for more classes and I began to see how little I actually knew about the contents and the formation of the biblical text. Like I had no idea when any of them were written. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about Christian history and theology, even though I'd been a faithful and studious Christian in high school. And that actually really bothered me. I felt like all of this information had been kept from me. And that really made me angry that I like had this false sense of um all knowingness. Honestly, I was pretty much taught in high school, like, this is all you need to know to be a Christian. Oh, like, wow. What? Yeah. So I just absorbed that framework because I thought that's all there was. I had no idea that there were other frameworks at all. And so once I saw that what I believed had been constructed by people, you know, not God, yep. Yep. and that my, my beliefs were not at all evident or clear in the biblical text at all, 
I started questioning all of it. There mm-hmm. were like, it's just, that's all you it pull takes. The thread. Like, yep. <laughs> yeah. You can't, uh, it's the Pandora's box. You can't unsee it. And yeah. I didn't want to unsee it. And so I started to see all of these multiple faithful expressions of Christianity that I had never heard of. Like I started reading feminist theology and liberation theology mm-hmm. and queer theology. And I didn't agree with everything I read, but I was so fascinated by the different ways that these really smart, thoughtful, faithful people throughout history had found ways to interpret and apply the teachings of Jesus. Like there was so much diversity and some of them contradicted each other, which I yeah. found confounding. And then it helped me realize there are so many ways to read these texts and understand them. And that eventually became very liberating for me. So questioning what Christianity meant was like an intellectual exercise to start that didn't really seep into my spirituality for a while. Like the classroom was very separate from my own personal practices. But then, you know, over time, I started to feel more and more like the evangelical communities I was in were very restrictive. And they were dictating how I spent my time and who I could date and what activities I could do. And none of it seemed theologically sound to me because, oh, yeah, I was learning right. in the classroom. <laughs> and it just felt controlling and contrived. Yeah. And I think I found that inner rebel that was really anxious to come out. And I started acting like the college student that I actually was. <laughs> and that meant I lost community along mm-hmm. the way. And that was painful. But that's like the cost of awakening, my friends. Mm-hmm. You you lose a lot, but you gain a lot too. And then, okay, so toward the end of college, I spent a summer working with unhoused people in Charlotte, North Carolina. And even though I'd done a bunch of mission trips as a youth, I had never learned about like poverty or class or why oh, we were even there. Like there was no conversation about why people might need like totally unskilled teens Teenagers. to come and help. Who probably were not doing a very good job. But like, we never talked about why we were there. It was just like, we're we're just here to serve, but not really thinking about the reason. And so then I spend the summer getting to know people who didn't have a permanent place to live. That was a whole educational experience on its own because I saw firsthand how systemic oppression functions to keep poor people poor. And frankly, just the status of being unhoused makes your very existence unwelcome or even illegal in certain places, like public places, like the library and stuff like that. So that was very transformative for my faith because I couldn't equate being a Christian with personal piety anymore. It was like, what are we doing for the collective? How do we make things more just and compassionate? And that was a big part of why I decided to apply to divinity school after college. Wow. I can relate to so much of that. And you know, I was in all the time I've known you, I don't think we've ever talked about what led you to divinity school. (laughs) That's I I really love hearing you talk about that part of your journey. Uh, So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Well, we've talked about where we started and when the first cracks came about and when we first started questioning. So before we get to where we are now, let's talk about the in-between. What did your in-between look like? Yeah. Okay, timeline. So the crack started 2001, and then things really shattered starting in 2005, 2006 when I got to divinity school. And that's not because I learned anything particularly enlightening there, honestly. Um, (laughs) I say this all the time. I got a much better theological education at Davidson College than I did at Yale Divinity School. And I said what I said, and I stand by that, and I will argue (laughs) it with anybody. (laughs) But, but 
graduate school offered me the first real environment to start living into this new expression of Christianity that I was trying out. So the shattering was not traumatic for me. It was really fascinating. I was living in New England now where like barely anybody went to church. It was not the thing to do on Sundays. And I was in classrooms with people from all over the country from denominations I had never even heard of. Like I'd never even heard of the United Church of Christ before I went to seminary. And so contrary to what you might think, pastors and training are anything but pious. We were very rowdy and loved to party <laughs> and, but also very thoughtful and deeply troubled people. So like, We're all living together, going to class together, going to chapel together, trying to figure out our lives and our callings. And I I finally was in a place where practically every person I encountered was there because they wanted to examine what their faith meant. And that's not true of every seminary, but it was true there at the time. Yeah. So that was very freeing, but it was also a window into seeing firsthand how messed up institutions are, like where I really saw how flawed institutions are and even abusive some of the most revered religious leaders can be. And that was shocking to me. Like I was very naive going in. I had a front row seat to like some of the most disturbing interactions that honestly made me question my faith more than any intellectual challenge I'd encountered in the classroom. Just observing people I admired and respected acting like a-holes and getting away with it without any consequences that made me question the legitimacy of institutions of all kinds, starting with academic institutions, but it did not stop there. (laughs) It didn't stop there. Okay. So like moving into 2008 to 2015, I would say that theme of institutions falling away, that continued because I worked for faith-based nonprofits and I worked for the United Methodist Church And again, got to see firsthand how badly people acted and worse than that, how the institution would bend over backwards to cover up that bad behavior if that person was valuable to maintaining the status quo of the institution. And of course, the reverse was true. If you were someone who questioned the status quo because you were not mainstream in some way, you got penalized and kicked out and ostracized. Like I saw that over and over and over again. So I think that there was like this split within myself where I have still aligned spiritually, especially with like the more mystical aspects of Christianity. And I still do now, but I no longer felt aligned with the institution. And I still love community and I've been part of faith communities here and there Since that time, but at some point being part of the organized faith community no longer felt like something I needed to do on any kind of regular basis as a core piece of my religious or spiritual identity. So that's where I landed in that in-between time, like that kind of split in the tension of those pieces of myself that I'm like, I don't know what to do with these. Yeah. So (laughs) that's sort of like, yeah, the that in-between. What about you? What was your in-between like? Hmm. Well, my in-between place was a struggle that lasted several years. After college, when I became a dietitian and started working for federal food stamp program, my values only became more progressive. I was thinking while you were talking about working for the um, program that worked with unhoused people, it was the same idea. It was learning about systemic oppression for the first time in my life. And also learning about how the church was complicit <laughs> in a lot of it. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just my, my, Values became more progressive as many of the Christian churches around me seem to be becoming even more conservative. And like you, my skepticism of institutions in general 
deepened as well. I think we could probably spend a lot of time sharing stories about some of the the abuses we've seen and the cover-ups we've seen in the church. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I got disillusioned pretty pretty quickly. But I was desperate to find a way to bring my faith and my values into alignment. So I adopted this narrative that might sound familiar to a lot of folks that I was in a quote, season of doubt or a crisis of faith. And I just needed to see it through to the other side. I tried out so many different churches, so many different denominations. (laughs) I read so many books by Christian (laughs) authors. Everything by Rachel Held Evans, including Searching for Sunday. That was a big one. I read Still Notes on a Mid-Faith Crisis by Lauren Winner. Oh, yeah. I know Lauren. Oh, you know her? Well, I really like <laughs> that book Duke. a lot. <laughs> yeah, she's cool. <laughs> yeah. I read Everything by Rob Bell and Sarah Bessie, trying to find a framework that I could believe in. And I would try anything that I thought could bring me back to the certainty I'd had as a teenager. That's really what I was looking for. I thought I just needed to find the right church or the right perspective even. So this was all happening in the background when I started Faith in Women in 2015. I was 31 at the time. And at first I had a lot of imposter syndrome that because of my so-called crisis of faith, I wouldn't be able to connect with Christians around reproductive rights and justice. Like, who was I to talk about being a pro-choice Christian when I didn't even know what I believed? Mm -hmm. Who was I to lead a faith-based organization? And for a little while, I even entertained the idea of going to divinity school because I thought that might make me more credible. And deep down, I also thought that might be a way back to the certainty that I was looking for. I did not end up going in that direction. (laughs) Thank God. Mm -hmm. And I can't pinpoint a specific moment, but through my work with Faith in Women, I experienced a profound shift in my perspective over time that felt like a slow unfolding or maybe even just relaxing my grip, letting go of that need for certainty. Because through that organizing work, I met progressive clergy from many faith traditions all over Mississippi. And I saw all the different ways that they carried out their values in their communities and their churches. I also met people of faith from other states, including you. And through all of those relationships and friendships, I found new ways to think about my own faith. I learned new language for my doubts and my struggles. And I finally had people to explore all of my questions with. I mean, that's pretty much why Kindreds was born. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) And that's when I began to see a way forward in my faith. So it doesn't look anything like it did when I was young through faith in women. I learned new ways to bring spirituality into my life and work. And this feels crucial to me. I learned how to align my activist side with my spiritual side. Those things don't have to be separate, even though the popular narrative is that, for instance, supporting reproductive justice and abortion rights is somehow unchristian, you know, mm-hmm. over time, that idea became a central part of the work of faith in women, creating a space and a language for people of faith in Mississippi who were like me, who wanted to align their own values and spiritual beliefs in service of others. The most important shift I experienced was starting to see all of my questions and doubts as my own inner wisdom that was real and valid and worth following. Not something I had to suppress, not something I had to get past, like answer that 
that inner wisdom and the questions I had, give them some kind of answer and then move on, you know? Slowly, I let go of the need for answers and certainty and external validation, (laughs) the need to be seen as good, as a good Christian, Mm -hmm. a good person. I have everything I need inside me, a connection to the divine inside me, and that's all I need. (laughs) Beautifully said. The the return to yourself that you're taught not to listen to feels like, that feels like at the crux of the spiritual journey that we're all called to be on. Mm-hmm. It's no wonder we met when we did. It's actually really wild to me to see how much we were on parallel paths without yes. ever having talked, which also makes me think collectively there was something going on. Cause I imagine that we are not the only two during Mm-mm. that time who are going through this process and have landed somewhere else. But it is really great to just hear how much it aligned before we were ever, you know, connected, at least in this physical realm. Okay. So after all that wrestling, where, where have you landed? Like, where are you right now? I shouldn't even say landed. It's more like, where are you right yeah. now? Knowing that this is like an ongoing evolution. And what are some of the things that you believe now? If you yeah. can even articulate that. <laughs> That's the question, right? <laughs> I was in a meeting a few months ago and I heard myself say, I'm not even sure I call myself a Christian anymore. And I thought about it later and I wondered, do I really feel that way? Or did that just come out of my mouth? And I think what I meant by that is I don't feel the need to call myself a Christian anymore. It doesn't matter to me as much. I consider myself culturally Christian. I grew up in the church. My family is Christian. I speak the language. I know the scriptures. I'm comfortable in religious spaces. And I appreciate everything my Christian upbringing taught me. And I now know and love and value many Christians in my life. But... I no longer feel that it's important for me to identify as Christian. I'm no longer searching for the right church or the right version of Christianity that will magically fit me. And I've let go of trying to mold myself to fit something that I don't believe in because I don't believe Christians are somehow more saved, more special, more loved by God than other people. I don't believe that Jesus came only to save people who say the right prayer or believe the right things. I used to think it was important for me to remain part of the church, to reclaim Christianity from those who've corrupted it for personal and political gain. And I know that conservative evangelicalism isn't the only way to be Christian. And I appreciate the Christians in my life who are working every day in support of justice and love in the world and doing that work to reclaim that label, you know, but that is not my path. And it took me a while to get here, but I am deeply at peace with that. And as far as what I do believe now, I haven't really replaced my old belief system with a new one. I've said this a lot on the podcast over the last year or two, but right now I'm comfortable in the mystery. When I feel like praying, I do. I visit nature to connect with spirit as much as I can. I use rituals or tools like tarot sometimes when I need them, like to help me let go of something I've been holding or to help me process grief, but nothing I do regularly. And recently a friend who is in a 12 step program was asking in a group chat about our conception of God. They were trying to kind of come up with how they understand their higher power. So a group of us were kind of sharing how we think about God. And this is what I said. I think of God as the great mystery that dwells within and outside of us, a reminder of all that I can't know or control. 
I believe that our own inner wisdom is the presence of the divine. And I find comfort in knowing that humans throughout history have asked these essential questions. Why are we here? What does it all mean? Is there something bigger than me? And I'm part of that human tradition. And that's really it. I am sure my beliefs will shift and evolve even more over time. And I'm totally fine with that. What was important for me to realize ultimately is that my values don't come from or depend on my religious belief. They come from my own inner voice. And so acting in alignment with my values is living out my faith. So living with integrity from a place of interconnectedness with other living beings and the earth, those are my values. And I can do that no matter what I call myself, (laughs) Christian or not. (laughs) So what about you? Oh, I love what you shared and I align with a lot of what you shared. And I don't think anything that you shared is really outside the realm of what Christianity teaches either. Not that that matters, but yeah, I don't see anything contradicting what I, my understanding of it. So yeah, I guess it's a little bit different for me because I am this like ordained Baptist minister, which makes things a little bit more tricky. So when people, people are like, how do you, how does that work? Right. I still confuse people that, that, that I can exist as a (laughs) woman and be a Baptist minister. So I say these days, I more identify with being a witch, which is honestly true. I'm not, I'm really not kidding. I mean, it's, I say it sort of like tongue in cheek, but I'm not kidding. I'm very much in a place of reclaiming the spiritual parts of myself that the church has literally burned throughout history. Like the divine feminine, the magic we hold within ourselves, Mm -hmm. the sacred wisdom that we embody that you were talking about. And in my opinion, these were things that Jesus embodied too. Like Mm -hmm. I see evidence of all of that and the way that he, um, that he walked this planet. So like you, now that I've loosened my grip on labels and feeling the need to justify my faith to anybody else. I'm actually yeah. spending a lot more time dedicated to my spiritual practices that are honestly not at all in conflict with Christianity either. Like the things I do around the the moon cycle, setting intentions around what I want to call into my life, aka praying. Praying, yes. <laughs> you know, releasing what no longer serves me with the full moon, aka forgiveness. Uh-huh. Asking spirit for guidance through time and nature, pulling cards, meditation, aka contemplative prayer. Yes. (laughs) They're all the same, y'all. It's the same freaking thing. Uh So I actually feel a lot more faithful to those practices now than I ever did when I was trying to be Christian enough or fit into those boxes and think that my practices of spirituality had to look and sound a certain way. Yeah. Once I was free, I was like, I actually can do all of these things just through a different frame. Okay. As a religion, I believe that in its most dominant expressions in the U.S. today, Christianity is too small, too restrictive, too white, (laughs) too often weaponized against the very people that the historical Jesus cared for, tended to, and advocated for. And this is just the latest iteration of what began in ancient times when Constantine declared that Christianity was the official religion of Rome, Mm -hmm. and Christianity became an institutional religion of empire. That is what it is. And we have seen this like over and over again throughout history, through the Crusades, the witch trials, the colonization of basically the whole world, slavery, the slaughtering of indigenous people, and on and on and on. All of that has been done through the lens of Christianity as a religion of empire. So 
this kind of speaks to what you were saying earlier. Like, even as a self-identified witch, (laughs) I will still continue to use my platform and my access and my education and privilege and knowledge to advocate that Christianity is also and always ought to be the religion of liberation. Because deep down, what I believe is that the birth and life of Jesus was not inconsequential or an accident. I believe Jesus had a mission from spirit to remind the people he encountered of what has always been true, that we are all born of the divine, that we all have value, that we are all interconnected. And what we do to one another, we do to ourselves. Yes. That is what is most important and how we love each other. And I, I don't believe Jesus came here just to be murdered by the state and that somehow that's supposed to be salvific instead of horrifying. Mm-hmm. I don't believe there's redemption in any act of violence because it is so very counter to love. And love is the only thing that actually exists. And there are Christians who agree with me. I'm not the only one who thinks this. So I believe Jesus came to teach, like through his words, but also through his healing of what mm-hmm. it means to be a human who understands that there is so much more than what we experience here in this 3D reality. And I think of Jesus as a very advanced soul who has ascended and like chose to come back to earth to help other souls along. And I think that that's part of this divine mystery is that these spiritual teachers and guides arrive at the time that they're needed and the context in which they're needed. And what's important isn't so much the individual person of Jesus, like as a historical figure, but the spiritual messages that he came to convey, things that we so often lose sight of, but deep down when we listen to our inner wisdom, we know are true. So in that way, I still consider myself a follower of Jesus, but just not exclusively. Mm. Like he's one among many, many beautiful souls pointing us back to the same truth of our oneness and shared divinity. And if that doesn't make me a Christian, well, I honestly don't care. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel like I was sitting here listening to Reverend say give a really beautiful sermon and I'm over here in the congregation like, uh-huh, yes, <laughs> breach. <laughs> I love what uh, you said so much. And, you know, if people want to hear more about our thoughts on Jesus specifically, you can go back and listen to our Who is Jesus to Us episode where we really get into it, although that was a few years ago now. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Our thoughts might have even evolved <laughs> since then. <laughs> but that's pretty much where we're going to leave it. As always, there is more we can say. <laughs> I feel like it's, are we Christian? Answer, we don't really care. We don't care. <laughs> are we Christian? Maybe. I mean, by whose definition? By our own, maybe not. Or by our own, yes, we are. But by yours, maybe not. So what does it matter? Like, that's where I land is like, what does it matter? I know who I am. Hmm. (laughs) I know I know what I believe. And, you know, that's really, that feels enough. Indeed. All right, folks. Well, a quick announcement. We will be taking a break for a few months this fall. My family and I are getting back on the road. And we'll be back toward the end of the year. So everyone, please enjoy the rest of your summer and fall. And Katie, <laughs> we will. I will talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 